0: Hi, I'm Kaylee. And I'm Naomi, coming at ya from the traditional unceded territory of the Coast Salish people. And this is... Sorry, Sorry Murder! Listener discretion is advised. Trigger warning, this episode includes violence and mental health struggles. Take care.
1: Thanks to everyone who checked out episode one. Maybe it was on purpose, maybe it was by accident, but it's fun to see you.
0: We see you, Scotland. We see you, Toronto, Canada. New York, Utah, we see you all.
1: You're creepers. Thanks a lot. And please keep listening. We promise to only get better. Today's episode is a little bit short. I wish I could say it's short and sweet. It is not. It is short and gruesome. Grandiose religiosity is something I've been intrigued by. Why is it that people so often have delusions involving God, speaking to God, or believing they are God?
0: Maybe for the same reason people believe they see God when they take mushrooms or LSD?
1: Yes, exactly. Well, one thing I do want to mention about this case is that it involves mental health issues and death. We recognize that struggling with mental health is extremely common. It should not be stigmatized. Yes, girl. I want to be clear that having a diagnosis or experiencing something such as psychosis does not mean someone will be a murderer.
0: In all groups of people, there
1: are always murderers. Indeed. Lastly, we have changed the names in this case. In the year 2006, a man named Brian was not feeling like himself. And by the end of the day, there would be blood on his hands. Oh no.
0: Okay, here we go.
1: Brian was a 47-year-old man who lived in Kitimat. He worked as an electrician. His family had lived together in Kitimat for 10 years. He was married to a woman named Gwen, and together they had two daughters named Rebecca and Sarah. Rebecca was 18 years old and had recently moved away to attend university. Sarah was 16 years old and still lived at home. Sarah was a very talented figure skater who took part in competitions and taught children to skate. Aww. 2006 had been a difficult year for Brian, because after working on a large project for his employer, he was feeling really underappreciated. The project did not result in a promotion as he had expected and hoped for. There were multiple other stressors that he was experiencing at the time as well, yet nothing that amounts to more than what are considered everyday burdens. Brian was a religious man. He enjoyed listening to Christian music. He even quit smoking and drinking as a sign of his commitment to God. Lately, he had spent a lot of time reading religious material, listening to religious music, and praying. But Brian wasn't feeling like himself lately. He had been feeling stressed, had trouble sleeping, and was experiencing difficulty concentrating at work. He had even lost quite a bit of weight in a short amount of time. On November 23, 2006, Brian woke up early, prayed, and read a sermon that he had asked his pastor to email him. Then he went back to his bedroom and woke up his wife Gwen to have sexual relations.
0: I'm getting a creepy
1: feeling already. This was an unusual occurrence for the couple, but it turned out that not much actually happened, as he was impotent on this occasion. Oh dear. Sometime later that morning, Brian was reading the sermon again, when he began to believe that there was hidden meaning within the sermon he formed the idea that God actually wanted him to murder his wife.
0: Oh, I felt that one coming.
1: At 7.15 a.m., Brian still had that thought in his head when he sat down to eat breakfast with his wife, Gwen, and daughter, Sarah. But he quickly lost his appetite and did not eat any breakfast. Gwen described his demeanor at that time as being very weird. Brian then left for work, but en route decided that he could not go to work. He was distressed by this message he had received from God that God wanted him to kill his wife. Brian was unsure what to do. He decided to purchase a scratch-and-win lottery ticket at the gas station, and if the ticket was a winner, it would serve as a sign from God that he really was to kill his wife. After purchasing the ticket, however, Brian was ashamed of himself for thinking that way, and he ended up not even scratching the ticket.
0: He sounds like so conflicted and confused.
1: Mm-hmm. Brian returned home where Gwen noticed that he seemed quite agitated. Unbeknownst to anyone, Brian went into the kitchen, took a knife, and concealed it inside his jacket. He then went into the bedroom for some time and later began walking around the house with his hands clasped inside his jacket, clutching the knife. He's losing it. His wife noticed him behaving oddly again and asked him to remove his hands from his jacket. He refused. Brian did not want to talk to Gwen. Eventually, she insisted that he sit down, and he did, but he then found himself unable to move at all. Gwen decided she needed some external support for Brian. She was either going to call the police or their pastor.
0: Wouldn't it be so nice if the police at that time had a mental health like unit or team to send out?
1: It would have, but it wouldn't have mattered because she decided to contact their pastor. Who headed over to their house right away. By the time the pastor got to the house, Brian had calmed down a lot. In fact, the pastor did not notice anything unusual about his behavior. Of course, Gwen was somewhat embarrassed and wondered whether she had overreacted by calling the pastor. Neither Gwen nor the pastor, of course, knew that Brian was having homicidal thoughts at this time. During the visit, Brian did chat with the pastor and disclosed that ten years earlier, he had been admitted to a psychiatric hospital after having religious delusions. This was the first that the pastor had heard of that. Brian said that during that time, what was right seemed wrong, and what was wrong seemed right. Hmm. The pastor stayed for about two hours, and was satisfied when he left that Brian did not seem to be acting out of the ordinary. Gwen had to head out to work at that point, and she did not want to leave Brian home alone that evening so she suggested that he go over to their friend's house, and he agreed. Gwen left for work at 1pm and planned to be home again by 9. Brian frittered away the afternoon. He dropped by his workplace to drop off some material, and then he went to pick up skates for his daughter Sarah. At about 4pm, Brian drove Sarah to a hair appointment. He then returned home, and a co-worker dropped by at about 4.30 to pick up a cell phone and a pager. The co-worker was at Brian's house for about 20 minutes, and in that time, observed Brian to be acting bizarrely. The two were not close acquaintances, and did not share religious beliefs. Yet, Brian talked about religion throughout the whole visit. The co-worker noticed that Brian had a glazed look in his eyes. Oh, it's happening. Brian himself described the visit with the co-worker as being mystical and surreal. He placed a lot of significance on this meeting.
0: Sounds like divine madness or like religious ecstasy.
1: Mm -hmm. After the visitor left, Brian became worried about his daughter's safety and fixated on the idea that some harm could come to her. He was still attributing special meaning to small things that were happening that day and concluded that Sarah's life was in danger. Brian called his wife at work, and she contacted the hair salon to see when Sarah's appointment would be done. It was going to last for one more hour. Brian was somewhat calmed by that news, and he did end up going over to the friend's house that evening as planned. Brian's friends reported that his demeanor that evening was somewhat melancholy, distracted, and distant, but not so out of the ordinary that would cause them to worry. But unbeknown to everyone around him, Brian was still reading messages into every occurrence. For example, he interpreted a dog playing with a toy and his friend choking on tea as being evidence of God's disappointment in him for having failed to kill his wife. He felt that God was deeply upset with him. Eventually, he left to head home, feeling what he described as heavy, heavy, heaviness.
0: That's so stupid.
1: (laughs) Brian arrived home sometime after 9.15pm, and by that time, his daughter Sarah was back home as well. When he got home, he noticed that the sermon was still open on his computer screen. He did not remember leaving it open, and so he saw this as an additional sign from God. Oh no. Then there's a pivot. Putting together all of the hidden messages, it now became clear to Brian that God actually wanted him to kill his daughter Sarah, not his wife Gwen. No. And Brian realized that if he did not do so, then he would have to kill his wife, Sarah and his older daughter when she came home to visit at Christmas time. Surely killing one person would be better than all three.
0: Yeah, he thought he had no choice but to kill Sarah at this point. I mean, he clearly thought
1: that someone needed to die. Brian went into the kitchen and grabbed the same knife he had been carrying earlier. He approached Sarah suddenly and stabbed her several times in quick succession, (sighs) first in the chest, then in the neck. He cut right through Sarah's throat from the front all the way down to the spine and into the bone. I just, like, actually
0: stopped breathing. That's gruesome.
1: It had been a sudden outburst, and as quickly as it began, it was over. Aside from a scratch on Brian's face and a broken fingernail on Sarah's body, there was no indication of a struggle. And apart from pooling blood on the floor, the room was exceptionally neat and tidy. All of the furniture remained in place. There was simply an out-of-place crime scene in a perfectly neat room.
0: So damn creepy.
1: Like, chilling. The stab wounds were severe. Some penetrated the heart and left lung. Another severed the carotid arteries, internal jugular vein, larynx, and esophagus. Awful. There was no way the injuries could be survivable, and Sarah died very quickly. Ah, Sarah. Brian then left the scene. Gwen arrived home just minutes later to discover the devastating scene. Horrifying, horrifying discovery. No parent should ever have to suffer the death of a child. It's about the worst thing I can think of. Oh, no doubt. Brian made a beeline to his church and prayed. He very quickly realized the horror of what he had done. Almost immediately, he began to recognize that his understanding that God wanted him to murder his daughter was an error. Oh, no. Too late. It's too late, Brian. As to be expected, Brian was arrested and charged with murder. Over the next few days, he continued to display confused and irrational behavior. I bet he legit went out of his mind. Meanwhile, Sarah's loss was deeply felt in the community. Sarah was described as being a responsible, dependable, and happy teenager. The children that she taught figure skating to looked up to her. Oy. When the funeral was held, it was full of people, including rows and rows of children that she had taught to skate. It's devastating. Brian was charged with the murder of his daughter, and no one disputed that. But a big question remained, whether or not he should be found criminally responsible. How much did a mental disorder affect his decision? Note, mental disorder is the term the courts use, so that's what we are repeating here. To summarize Section 16 of the Criminal Code, the responsibility is on the defense to illustrate that the accused was not in a proper state of mind to understand what they were doing. And to summarize Section 16.2 of the Criminal Code, courts never assume that the person is not criminally responsible due to a mental disorder. It must always be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And this is usually proven through psychiatric assessments and records. The court heard from two psychiatrists who were both in agreement that Brian suffered from bipolar mood disorder or bipolar affective disorder, and both considered that he was in a hypomanic state at the time of the homicide. They described Brian's behavior and his finding signs in everyday occurrences as being characteristic of a psychotic episode. They did not believe that Brian was grounded in reality. Naomi, can you tell us what the judge stated?
0: Uh, The judge stated... There is no doubt that Brian was suffering from a mental disorder, or disease of the mind, as it is classically termed at the time that the crime was committed. There is no evidence to the contrary, and I am satisfied that at the time the crime was committed, Brian did suffer from a mental disorder.
1: There was some back and forth between Crown and defense about whether Brian could have appreciated that what he did was wrong. Because even by his own account, he did know that he was going to kill Sarah. And afterwards, he realized that it was wrong. Due to the nature of this case, Brian was not able to talk to his family during the court proceedings. He asked counsel to read a statement from him in court because he knew that his family would hear it there. He wanted to share his sincere grief of what happened. Naomi, let us know what counsel said.
0: Counsel said, He's told me repeatedly that he can't believe He did what he did. The depth of his emotion about what occurred is still resonating with him each and every day, and he wishes that he could undo everything that happened, and which brought him here and made this whole tragic event ruin him. The first and foremost is his family, and he says that the last thing he would ever want to do was hurt them, let alone his wife and his daughter or daughters.
1: What was the final judgment? The judge said... The evidence satisfies me that Brian, at the time of the offense, did not know what he was doing was wrong. Later, the judge explained that they considered the possibility Brian might have been faking his symptoms. But the psychiatrist's diagnosis was to be believed, for five reasons. Number one, Brian had a verified previous history of mental illness. Two, there was a fair bit of independent corroboration of Brian's strange behavior on that day. Three, there was no suggestion of any motive for murder. Brian had not been an abusive parent. Four, Brian had no history of violence or of crime against anyone. And finally, five, the delusions involving the will of God mesh with strong religious beliefs that Brian held. So, the judge did not find Brian to be criminally responsible. Brian went to a forensic psychiatric hospital where a review board would decide if he should receive an absolute discharge, a conditional discharge, or a detention in custody in a hospital. It seems they chose detention in a hospital because Brian currently resides in a hospital that houses several high-profile killers. I mean... An article in the Vancouver Sun cited that while Brian was on an overnight pass from the Port Coquitlam Forensic Psychiatric Hospital, he went to visit a former resident of the hospital. Brian got high on cocaine and ended up stabbing the person he had gone to visit. And on January 26, 2010, he was sentenced back to the same hospital for 45 days. Yet just five days later, the BC Review Board ruled that he could still receive escorted access to the community depending on his mental condition. That's so dumb. No one in the hospital can confirm if he has since been out in the community. It is stated that he seemed to have made a good recovery. The Crown, however, stated that Brian can deteriorate very quickly into a psychotic state, meaning that he is in fact a danger to the public. Brian's lawyer did not agree with that and pointed out that Brian is ultimately protected by whatever the review board decides. So it seems that this will be ongoing. Maybe Brian will recover to a degree that he can once again live in the community. We'll see. It's just so shocking to me that he lived his whole life, you know, fairly normally, and then it just went in this downward descent.
0: Well, totally. I mean, I feel like I'm not extremely educated enough to speak towards mental illness. Um, But what I do feel like is it, I think that with any disorder, it takes a while for it to like set in. And I think that his has set in. So he's absolutely a, danger to the public i think the bc review board is garbage i don't think that it should be reviewed i think that he just needs to be like kept in there but also think about that he's kept in there with other killers and so this is his environment and then he gets like escorted service that's just so
1: dumb that's my rant i mean things are done a specific way for a reason but it doesn't always um you know pan out to the public's best interest. But I mean it otherwise you could infringe on rights. And I mean people do need second chances. So it's just it's so tough. There's no answer and it's totally frustrating.
0: Friends, monitor your mental health and your friends and family's mental health. You don't have to be ashamed to talk about it or bring it up with someone you are concerned about. There are services, professionals, medications that can help. But it is important to seek that help out. For today's episode we encourage donations to go towards BC Schizophrenia Society, which has an office in Terrace. If you don't know where to turn and are at a loss of what to do next to help someone you love, and especially if they live with schizophrenia or any other serious mental illness, talk to a BC Schizophrenic Society regional educator. They can help you figure out the next steps and help you learn about what you can do to help yourself and your loved ones. We'd love to hear from you, so send us an email at sorrymurderpod at gmail.com, or find us on Instagram
1: at sorrymurderpod. Sorry to love you and leave you. Bye-bye. Bloopers. Bloopers. Look how five words ahead. Yet nothing that announced. <laughs> oh, no, fuck. Another severed the carrot. It. The stab wounds. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Oh, fuck my stomach to the sound. I'm still a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> okay.